Good morning. Oh, that's good. So the, so the later service is the awake service. Is that right? Yeah, I feel like I'm in a Baptist church in here right now, you know, talking back. It's such, a, it's such a joy to be with you guys and to be fellowshipping together in song and seeing old friends and making new friends. Um, I was first here six years ago uh, at the invitation of Mac and Brian and David. Um, I, feel, I feel a little bit like what the Apostle Paul must have had in mind when in, in Philippians 1 he writes to the church in Philippi and he, he reminds them that they have been partners together with him in the gospel from the first day until then. Um, that trip here six years ago was before I was um, full-time as a senior pastor, before I was um, preaching full-time, and it was the first of the Christian-Muslim dialogues, and uh, it just feels like we've been in partnership together in the gospel uh, from that first day until now, um, you all are are dear to me. The the leadership. I know you know this as a church, but I, I just want to say it, just in case for some bizarre, uh, bizarre reason you have forgotten it for even just for a moment. Um, but as a church, you all are blessed with outstanding leadership, faithful men of God who love you. Um, you all are dear to them. I can tell that in the way they talk of you, the way they speak of you, the way they rejoice um, over you and, and about God's work in your life. Um, I'm so appreciative of, of Pastor Dave and, and his, his ministry in the Word. I can tell he's been, he's been engaging you with God's Word because this morning, um, as, as, as this poor preacher opened God's Word, um, you all listened with, with intent and with eagerness. Um, I, I know that they served together well as a team of elders and leaders. Uh, so thankful for, for Mac and for, for Brian and for David and all, all, of, all of the staff, Lenny and others. Uh, it's just a joy uh, to not only be in partnership with you in the gospel, but to see your partnership together in the gospel and to see the Lord's work in this church. Uh, and, and, and I hope you have a sense of, of God's abiding presence with you as we were just singing. And I'll help you have a sense of his, his amazing work through you and, and what the Lord is doing here in this congregation. And so it's just a delight uh, for me to be with you and to open the word. I, I should introduce a young man in the, in the corner back there. This is Dalman. Say hi, Dalman. <laughs> this is Dalman Vaughn. Dalman is traveling with me from, from Cayman. And uh, we, we're just delighted to be with, here with you and serving together. If you would, would you, would you pray for me or pray with me and for me? Uh, <laughs> As we go to God's word, let's pray together. Father, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. Help us now to feed upon your word. Help us, Lord, to hang upon your word. To anticipate every insight, to, to, to eagerly anticipate your speaking to us and, and pressing your word into our souls. Lord, Lord, plow our hearts with your word, we pray. Plant it deeply in the soil of our hearts and, and water it and cause it to bring forth fruit a hundredfold. We are desperate to hear from you. More desperate than we know. And we are desperate that you should, you should preach to us from your word. So help the listener and help the preacher, we pray. Show us Christ. Lift him high. Speak to us. Speak, O oh Lord, your servants listen. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, with God's help this morning, I want to... 
help us give some attention to what I think is one of the most important and one of the most practical and yet one of the most challenging callings upon our lives as Christian people. And that's a challenge for us, just as God has done with us, to forgive others. We're called to this walk of forgiveness. We're called to this, 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 this life of relieving, as it were, the burden that, that guilt and transgression and sin and broken relationships just sort of lumbers upon us. And I'm talking now about forgiveness, not just of the, the easy ways we forgive, the, the, the kinds of things that you say to people, oh, don't worry about it, it was nothing. I'm not talking about the kinds of offenses that we, we can overlook because they don't, they don't cost us as much. They don't hurt us as deeply. I'm talking about forgiveness in the deepest hurts, in the most exquisite pains. I'm talking about deepest forgiveness in, when, when, when we have been transgressed against in the, in the most profound ways by the people that we sometimes love the most. And perhaps it's the betrayal of a spouse. Perhaps it's the rebellion of children. Perhaps it's persecution and hardship in the workplace. Pains that you don't speak about publicly. Breaches of trust. Breaking of relationships. That leave wounds and scars sometimes for years. How do you, how do we Forgiven those situations. Can I tell you a story as we prepare to look at Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 to 21? On July 25, 1993, four comrades of the Azanian People's Liberation Army entered St. James Church in Cape Town, South Africa. The four men entered the church during the evening service through the rear doors of the church armed with M26 hand grenades and R4 assault rifles. As they entered the building, they threw the grenades into the crowd, then opened fire with their automatic weapons, killing 11 and wounding 58. Mr. Lorenzo Smith had his wife Myrtle die in his arms. A piece of shrapnel had pierced her heart. They had been married for 21 years, she left behind her husband and her two children, Craig and Mandy, who by God's grace were not hit in the attack. 17-year-old Richard O'Kill died instantly from a bullet through his head as he flung himself across two friends, Lisa and Bonnie, to shield them from a gunman's attack. 21-year-old Gerard Harker died instantly as he dived on top of a hand grenade to protect those nearby. Mrs. Marita Ackerman, shot in the chest at close range. She died about 30 minutes after arriving at the hospital. Marita had twice triumphed over cancer. She had helped start an outreach ministry to the Kyalisha Township and also initiated an outreach ministry to Russian sailors, Russian seamen passing through the harbor in Cape Town. Marita left behind her husband and three children. She was buried on her birthday. Four of the slain were Russian soldiers. Another victim was Guy Javins. Of those victims crippled in the attack, the most heartrending situation might be that of the Ukrainian soldier Dmitry Makagon. Both his legs were ripped off when one grenade fell in his lap. His right arm had to be amputated and both his eardrums 
burst into blast. Dimitri, who was 23 years old at the time, was earning money as a sailor in order to pay for his wedding on his return home. How do you forgive such deep and tragic hurts? How do you forgive such pain and atrocity? Our text for this morning, by God's grace, teaches us how. We look into the life of Joseph at the end of the book of Genesis, and we see a, a scene where Joseph and his brothers, who had been, been separated really by betrayal, who had, who had known the, the loss of affection and had known brutal mistreatment, are reconciled, forgiven by God's grace. Forgiveness brings freedom. And we see this in Genesis chapter 50, verses, verses 15 to 21. If you have your Bibles, turn with me there. You find it, find it on page 41 of the Bible. <laughs> Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 to 21. This is God's word. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. As we look into this passage this morning, I want us to, to hang our thoughts really on, on two points, on two sections of the scripture here. The first, the first section, if you're taking notes, is verses 15 to 18. That's where we see the brothers' request for forgiveness. And one of the things we want to observe in that section is how failing to seek forgiveness from, from those that we have wronged how failing to do that paralyzes us. We want to be for a moment in the shoes of Joseph's brothers, observing how their failure to seek forgiveness really, really rendered them inert, made them inactive, paralyzed them. And in our second section here, verses 19 to 21, we want to see that Joseph grants more than mere forgiveness. And in that section, we want to see how it is that, that knowing God well is really what frees us to forgive the deepest hurts. It's knowing God well and walking with him that frees us to forgive the deepest hurts. So let's look at this first section, verses 15 to 18, where the brothers come to Joseph and, and they request forgiveness from Joseph. Our, our text really opens in the, in the beginning of Genesis chapter 50, verses 1 to 14. That's the scene where, where their father Jacob is buried. Jacob has lived a long life and he has, he has died and he has, he's asked the boys in verses 13 to 14 to, to bury him in Canaan, to take him back to that promised land and to, to bury him there. 
And the boys, in, in, in mourning for their, for their father, have, have sort of come together in unity. And they have, they have honored their father's wishes. And they have returned to Canaan. And they've returned with a, with a great procession. It's almost as though all of Egypt comes out for the funeral. All those in authority and in high places and, and, and the whole country mourns for Joseph's father. And they bury him just as he had wished. But now the brothers have a problem. See there in verse 15. They're afraid that Joseph may, may hold a grudge against them and may seize the opportunity, now that their father has died, to pay them back for the wrongs they've committed to him. If you know the story of Genesis, you know back in Genesis chapter 37, chapter 38, the brothers, jealous of Joseph, who received preferential treatment from his father and, and himself was a bit of a braggart, they sold him into slavery. And they, and they, and they, and they faked his death. They, they took his, the coat that his father had given him, that coat of many colors that had become this sort of symbol of their father's preferential love and a, and a symbol of, of hostility. They took that coat and they ripped it in shred and they, and they dipped it in the blood of an animal and they, and they took it to their father and said, we think this is Joseph's coat. It looks like some animal, some wild animal has, has butchered him. And their father nearly dies of grief. This was his favorite son. It was something of an idol in his life. And so... Many, many years ago, they had betrayed their very own brother and sold him into slavery. But now, according to Genesis chapter 47, verse 28, they had been reunited to Joseph. They had, had come to Egypt in order to find food because there was a famine throughout all the earth. And Joseph, in God's kindness, had been raised to this high level in Egypt. And, and, and can you imagine that day when, he, when he's, after 25 years, he looks up, and he sees in the stream of people coming to him for food, faces that at first seemed vaguely familiar. And as he looks upon them, observes their height and their walk, and hears them talk in a tongue he hasn't heard in years, he realizes that these are, these are indeed his brothers. To fast forward the story a little bit, Joseph reveals who he is and and they're reunited after 25 years and the brothers go back and they bring his father into Egypt and the family settles in the land of Goshen. And Genesis 48 uh, tells us, Genesis 47 tells us that they have been in Goshen for 17 years. They've rediscovered their brother. Their brother has rediscovered the family. And for 17 years, there hasn't even been a whiff of an apology. They've been living in the knowledge of their transgression, their sin against their brother for almost two decades. And they've not apologized. They've not dealt with their guilt. And now their dad has died. And they're wondering, will Joseph get even? They've got a problem. But they also have a plan. Notice the brother's plan there in verses 16 to 17. They figure out a way to ask for forgiveness that they think will increase their odds of being forgiven and keep them in safety. Notice what they do there. First, they send a messenger to Joseph. They don't, they don't go themselves. And the message is supposed to be from Jacob. They, they figuratively raised Jacob from the dead and, and put their confession in their father's mouth. It's clever. You notice how they say, your father, you know, appealing to that special bond between between. Joseph and his dad. And notice what they say there. They say, they say, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you're to say to Joseph. 
I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Can you, can you hear the harps playing in the background? You know, they're saying, this is, this is what dear old dad would have wanted for us. Forgive your brother, they're, they're wrong. Now, it's interesting, if you read the book of Genesis, there's not a trace, there's not a hint of the idea that Jacob even knew what had happened. It seems the brothers have made this up. It seems they've been, they've been somewhat dishonest in their, in their apology, and, 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 and they, they, they sort of put this in their father's mouth, hoping for a good result, hoping for, for a good return. So it's not quite the confession that they ought to make when they come to their brother making this appeal. Now, notice something else. Verse 18, the brothers have a problem, the brothers have a plan, and now we see the brothers prostrate before Jacob, or Joseph, excuse me. They come to him, they bow themselves before him, and they say, we are your slaves. Now, now before we consider Joseph's reaction, it's worth considering the brothers' failure to seek forgiveness before this point. There's some lessons that we can learn from, from their inaction. The two applications, at least, that, that I want to I present before us this morning. First of all is this. The failure to seek forgiveness from people we've wronged is often a result of fear. The failure to seek forgiveness from people we, we know we've wronged is often a result of fear. And our fear can control us and manipulate us and dominate us. Have you ever had something outstanding between you and someone else and you knew you were wrong and, and yet you've not come to that place of offering confession and seeking, seeking forgiveness and maybe you've been walking through the mall here after a service and, and you saw that brother or sister coming your way in the opposite direction and, and that, that certain seizing happens in your heart and you know, you're startled a bit and, and what do you do? You go into that expensive jewelry store knowing you have no money, you know, make that hard right to avoid them. They've been doing this for 17 years. Can you imagine how often they've looked at Joseph and remembered what they've done and how hard they've worked to hold that down for fear? And our fear, our fear is fluent in many languages. It, it speaks to us in many tongues. And it, it has many ways in which it, it just sort of creeps up into our, into our awareness and, and begins to tempt us, usually, usually with questions. Things like, what will happen to us if we confess? Or, or a question like, what, what, will they, what will they do to us? How will they respond? And in our fear, we, we sometimes wonder, will Will my confession bring more hurt to the other person? Will we harm the other person more? Or maybe we're more selfish than that. We wonder, will I lose reputation? Will I lose face or standing? Or what if I'm not forgiven? All of these, all of these are evidences of how fear feeds upon Faith, how it cannibalizes faith, how fear is a real enemy of, of trusting God and, and doing what God calls you to do, even, even though it be hard, even though it's difficult. So can I ask you this morning, is there someone you need to seek forgiveness from, but perhaps fear is preventing you from confessing? Is there someone in your life that you need to be reconciled with? 
And yet you see that that reconciliation goes unachieved because fear and not faith is dominating you right now. Second thing I want us to observe in the brothers and their failure to seek forgiveness. Notice, notice that when we fail to seek forgiveness because of fear, then also our guilt remains on us. Our guilt remains on us. Our guilt also dominates us. We, we try to suppress the guilty feelings and, and we try to ignore it. And we, we even offer confessions to God that we have wronged so-and-so. And we, we seek God's forgiveness. I wonder if you've ever had the experience of confessing some, some transgression, some sin, some mistreatment that you have given to someone else, of confessing that to God and hoping for relief and yet finding none. Still feeling guilty. Still feeling lumbered under the weight of the knowledge of your wrongdoing. It's because forgiveness has two aspects to it. There's a, there's a judicial forgiveness. There, that, is, that is that forgiveness that Jesus talks of in, in Matthew chapter 18, I believe it is, when Peter asks him, how often shall we forgive our brother? And he says, you know, 70 times, 7 times. That, that posture of forgiveness, that's, that's always eager and ready to forgive. Well, that's the kind of forgiveness we can prepare our hearts to do with God. That alone with God, we, we, we seek that posture and we seek that, that, that Christ-likeness. But there's another aspect of forgiveness called relational forgiveness. And we don't have that kind of forgiveness until, as the term suggests, there is a relationship that's restored. That there is the, the, the reconciliation between the parties involved in the offense. And until we pursue that in faith, we may, we may labor under that guilt. We may have that cloud just traveling over our heads wherever, wherever we go and, and whatever we do. So our fear and our guilt can dominate us. And have you ever noticed that whenever our fear and our guilt speak to us, they never call us to imagine good things? It's always the worst. It's always the worst possible outcome. And this is why an unresolved guilt and a, and, and, and a fear, an untamed fear, is the enemy of faith. And this is what these brothers are suffering from. And, and, they've, and they've tried, I take it, for these 17 years to, to suppress their knowledge of guilt and to, and to sort of move on, hoping that, that time will just sort of wash it away. And yet here it is, they, the death of their father has brought it rushing back to the front of their mind. And they found that it hasn't really gone away. And they find that they have two needs that really drive them to their faces before Joseph. They have the need to have a, a clean conscience before God and man. And they have a need to be reconciled to their brother. And this is where we find them. They're on their knees before, before Joseph seeking, seeking forgiveness. And so can I ask you another question? A question that I asked myself this morning as well. Is there any relationship you're in where you realize that you have these two needs, a clean conscience and reconciliation? If so, that's a relationship wherein you probably need to seek or to give forgiveness. Let's consider how Joseph responds to his brothers here in verses 19 to 21. And in his response, we see that, that knowing God well is what really frees us to forgive these radical deep hurts. 
The first thing we see from Joseph here in, in verse 17 is that Joseph weeps when he receives word of, the, of, 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 of confession from his brothers. He weeps. He cries. Now Jeremiah is nicknamed the, the weeping prophet, but, but Joseph gives him a run for his money. Joseph has been crying since chapter 42 of Genesis. I mean... For 20 years, that man's just been weeping. He cries on his brother's neck. He runs in the bathroom and cries. He, he cries when they confess. It's a crying man. I guess real men do cry. When Joseph probably wept because this apology has been over 40 years in coming. Over four decades, he's been waiting perhaps to, to hear these kinds of words that, that bring relief and reconciliation and restoration. I mean, consider the path his life has taken over these 40 years since he, since he was betrayed by his brothers. In Genesis chapter 37, verse 2, we were told that Joseph was 17 years old when he was sold into slavery. Now, he's like most 17-year-olds. He, he knew it all, you know, and it was, his, it was his talking a bit too much that angered his brothers most. I didn't justify their selling him into slavery, but he was a, he was a young teenager when he was sold into slavery. And then we're told that for 13 years he was a, a slave and a prisoner in Egypt. First a servant to, uh, to, 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 a, to, a, to a servant there, an official there, and then later sold into or, 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 or cast into prison because he was framed by, by his master's wife. So even though he tried to live a clean and righteous life in the toughest of circumstances, it seems that at this point, his life is still spiraling down. And he's either in slavery or in prison, as we said, for, for 13 years before Pharaoh discovers him. He's a man of, of 30 years old. He lives through seven years of abundance in Egypt and then another five years of famine before he, before he lays eyes on his brothers again. He was, he was 42 by that time. And then we're told that, that they live in Goshen for 17 years before this apology. He's, he's 59 years old. Can you imagine living from, 70, from 17 to 59, almost 60 years old? 25 years of that time having not seen your family. And 17 years of that time having not received apology. 42 years deeply sinned against and unreconciled. Let me ask you. Could you, could I, could we, could we forgive someone who sinned so greatly against us after so long a time? We have that in us. There, there may be someone that has sinned against you in deep, harmful ways. Or it may be that such an offense lies in our future. And we will be mistreated in deep and painful ways. How are we going to forgive them? How are we going to live out that calling in Ephesians 5.1 as dearly loved children to forgive as we have been forgiven by God? How will we do that in such painful ways? We, we see three things in Joseph's response that teaches us how to forgive as God's people. Three things. First of all, Joseph keeps his place. Joseph keeps his place. Notice there in verse 19, Joseph responds by saying, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? 
There's an interesting dynamic going on with the brothers in verses 17 and 18. Notice in verse 17, they describe themselves, first of all, as servants of the God of your father. Then in verse 18, they come to Joseph and they say, we are your slaves. They seem to be thinking of Joseph as standing in the place of God. And surely Joseph, in one sense, is, is prefiguring Christ. He's a type that is, that is pointing forward toward Christ. But, but Joseph, notice, corrects them. He'll, he'll have none of that. He knows that God is God alone. There is, there is no other beside him. There is, is only one true and living God. And Joseph does not dare stand in God's place in any way. He cannot stand in judgment of his brothers in the, in the place of God. And realizing that, is the first thing that frees Joseph to forgive this deep, hurtful pain. At the root of unforgiveness is a heart that takes the place of God by sitting in judgment of others. A heart that sort of climbs up on on the judgment seat and, and refuses mercy. A heart that says your sins shall remain attached to you and I shall hold it against you because I am now judging you for your wrong. That's at the root of unforgiveness. Usurping the place of God. Taking over his throne. Joseph shows us that he will will not do that. He will not take the heavenly seat. And it's a good lesson for us, for, for we forget the, the lesson of James chapter 1, verse 20, where James says, the anger of man does not produce the righteous results that God wants. Our anger does not produce the righteousness of God. We forget that sometimes. We need to remember that. Our place is not in God's seat, but in following his path. We don't stand in his place. We walk in his footsteps. So in order to forgive the deepest hurts, we first of all have to keep our place. Let God be God and let us bow before him. The second thing we learn from Joseph is this. Joseph trusts God's providence. Joseph trusts God's providence. We see that in verse verse 20 where Joseph tells his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the the saving of many lives. This is a very good illustration of what we heard read for us so well in Romans 8, particularly verse 28, that that all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Providence teaches us that that God is at work as 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 a master orchestrator in all the events of life working them together in such a way that they, they advance his purpose and his will. I, I wonder how many of you um, remember albums, the, the actual albums. It's okay. You don't have to be ashamed. You can raise your hand. There, there's some of us. I'm the greatest one in the room. You remember albums? You got them, you put them in the sleeve. You, you didn't want them to get scratched and ruin the album. And you better not leave them in too much heat, you know, liable to melt or something. Remember, albums had A-sides and B-sides, right? Some of you do. Some of you have seen albums in museums. The rest of us have a living experience with them. (laughs) A-sides and B-sides and used to have these arcane discussions, now arcane discussions about whether the A-side or the B-side was the better on the album, you know? Well, Providence is like an album that's playing. On the B-side are human actions and decisions. On the A-side is God's purposes and actions. 
The wonderful thing about providence, what the Bible is telling us about providence is, is unlike albums that you have to flip and play one side at a time, life is sort of playing both sides at the same time. So that men really do act in history and really do make decisions and really do sometimes betray and hurt one another deeply. But at the same time, in and through and before and after the actions of men, God is at work too. So that there's this perfect symphony playing wherein men are acting and God is superintending the actions of men and he's producing the music that he wants. So there's nothing that's going on in our lives that doesn't first come through God's hands. There's, 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 no, there's no hurt that we're suffering. There's no, no pain that we're suffering. There's no, there's no reality that we're encountering in which God does not live, in which God is not active, in which God is not ruling. So he's sovereignly orchestrating all the events of life. Now, some of you may, may be feeling this appropriately in this sense. You may be saying, Pastor T., that means, or at least calls to mind, even sharper questions about the character of God. If the hurt I'm feeling and the suffering I've gone through is, is suffering and hurt that's come through God's hands, what's up with God? And so there's this question raised about the character of God. And what I, all I want to say to you is that's precisely where the question ought to be raised. It ought to be raised and resolved in the character of God, not in the actions of men. So that even though we suffer, we're reminded that God is good and God is loving and God is righteous. And so that his control, even where he allows hard things to enter our lives, his control ultimately is going to be for our good. It's ultimately going to be a display of his love. It's ultimately going to be a display of, of the grandeur of his, his restoration and, and reconciliation. And it's trusting God's providence that the A side is playing while the B side of pain is going on that frees us to forgive. That frees us to trust God. That frees us to lean further into God's grace and to depend upon his love. For we know and rely upon his love for us. And providence is the music of that love. Well, notice something else. I, I love the way that um, Lewis Smead puts it. He talks about forgiveness and the freedom to forgive. He says, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner was you. To forgive is to set a prisoner free and to discover that the prisoner was you. Because right also in the heart of unforgiveness is this, this being taken hostage by the intent and the hurt of others. And trusting providence frees the hostage to that intent and that evil. So is there a situation in, in your life? Is there a circumstance where you need to remember God's providential and sovereign control of all things? Where you need to bring that, that big theological idea right down into the, into the grittiness of your life? For God is in control. And that's what enables us to trust him. To lean upon him. To look to his good. It's so the third thing that we learn from Joseph here that helps us to forgive the deepest hurts. You see it there in verse 21. 
The third thing that freed Joseph to forgive such a deep betrayal and hurt after years of no apology was Joseph's understanding of grace. Joseph understood grace. Grace is the kindness of God shown to people who do not earn it and in fact people who forfeit any claim to it. It's unmerited favor. We cannot merit or earn God's grace and we have demerits against his grace. Yet God shows favor toward us. He, showed us. he shows us lavish kindness. He comes to us and extends to us his grace. And Joseph, Joseph understands that. His, his promise to supply there in verse 21, the needs of his brothers and their children is purely an act of grace. They have no claim on such love. They, they can't barter with him about it. They certainly can't demand it. So that Joseph offers it is just lavish kindness. Extreme generosity. He knows how to live that way because that's how God has treated him. God has shown him lavish kindness, has kept him and delivered him and been with him in all of his trials and has exalted him to the highest place in the land. He treats them as God has treated him. We have a dear sister at our church uh, who works in one of our ministries in the church. We have a child care program there. Uh, her name is Miss Jenny, an older lady who, who loves the Lord. You often see her out um, walking the babies in the strollers and singing over the babies. And, and you see Miss Jenny, you come in the morning and say, Hey, Miss Jenny, how are you? And she always, she always claps her hands together. You know, it's like this. She said, I'm blessed and highly favored. You know, that's her response all the time. I'm blessed and highly favored. She's singing of God's grace. I think about a good friend of mine, some of you will know, named Ryan Townsend. He's the new executive director of Nine Marks Ministry. Ryan Townsend is, a, is an identical twin. He has a brother named Jason. And uh, they, they, you, when I first met them, I couldn't tell them apart. Now, interesting thing about Ryan and Jason is that, that they both sort of tilt their head to one side. You know, maybe in the womb they were sort of negotiating space or something. But, you know, they, 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 both, they both tilt their head to, to one side. And the way you tell the difference is Ryan tilts to the right, Jason tilts to the left. Right? I love Ryan. He's a joyful brother. He's just filled with the joy of the Lord. And whenever you, whenever you see Ryan and you ask Ryan uh, how he's doing, often he will respond to you, better than my sins deserve. So, Ryan, how's it going today? Brother, I'm being treated better than my sins deserve. Ryan has discovered grace. Grace is God treating us better than our sins deserve. It, it is that status we have of being, being blessed and highly favored by God. And Joseph has come to discover that. And that's what Joseph extends to his brothers. It's striking. There they are, laying before him, face in the dust, prostrate before him, bowing for her, before him, pleading for his forgiveness. And does Joseph, does Joseph put his boot on their neck? No. He puts his hand under their chins and he lifts them up and he shows him grace and love just as he had been shown. It's a striking thing to consider the response at St. James Church in Cape Town. You know, sometimes reporters are hard to love. You know, they have a, they have a difficult job. They go into situations where people would be, we think, better left alone. And they make of people's tragedy news for a voyeuristic culture. Not long after the 
that night, that Sunday evening when the gunman entered the church at St. James and tossed grenades into the congregation and, and opened fire. Minutes later, with the ambulances, arrived the reporters and they rushed into the scene. And try to picture this. The place is in chaos. Pews are blown to shards. People are laying in the aisles and some bleeding, others just wailing for lost loved ones. Fathers and husbands holding their wives in their arms. And the smell of gunpowder, grenades. And in come the reporters. And they do what reporters do. They, they put the microphone in people's faces and the, and the cameramen zoom in and and they, they ask basically this question over and over as they work through the congregation. What do you think about the people who did this? Can you imagine? And the remarkable thing was the answer that they received almost an antiphonal chorus. So they went through the church, shoving the microphone in people's faces, zooming in with a tight lens on the camera, asking, what do you think of the people who did this? Over and over. People responded. We forgive them. We forgive them. Because of what Christ has forgiven us, we forgive them. And a revival breaks out in that church. So it's the St. James revival. This, this tragedy that, that clearly was instigated and, 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 and fueled by, by satanic anger and, and murderous rage. This, this tragedy that happened in that church by God's amazing grace and the hearts of people who, who trusted God worked out to the, to the furtherance of the gospel. As God's people were, were turned out even toward their perpetrators in, in forgiveness and grace. Refused to take the place of God but extended mercy and love and forgiveness. It was a powerful witness to the gospel in the, in the latter days of apartheid in South Africa. God's people forgiving. And that's what we're, that's what we're called to is, to, is to know this, this kind of life, this kind of life of, of radical forgiveness and, and radical generosity. And it's, and it's enabled by us, number one, not taking God's place in judgment. And number two, trusting in God's providence in, in all things. And number three, extending the same grace that we have received from God, our Savior. And perhaps you've come this morning and you're not yet a Christian. Perhaps you've come this morning and you've not, yet, you've not yet received for yourself this grace that I'm talking about, this, this love that I'm talking about that, that comes from God through his son, Christ Jesus. I want to tell you about the most remarkable providence in the history of the world. It's recorded for us in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. There the apostle Peter preaches the first Christian sermon. He stands and he preaches to the crowd and he says to the crowd of, of hearers on that day, he says, he says that Jesus Christ had been delivered by God's, God's foreknowledge and God's appointed purpose as the A-side. And he says, but you, with the help of evil men, put him to death. That's the B-side. 
That on Calvary's cross, the, the evil acts of men, indeed the, the sins of us all, were, were nailing the Son of God to the cross. But at the same time, that suffering and that, that death and, and, and that tragedy was, was God's A-side, the, the song of His salvation, the, the working of His miraculous grace. At the same time, God was triumphing over His enemies in the cross of His Son, so that the suffering of Christ also becomes the exaltation of Christ, that the death of Christ becomes the, the salvation of sinners. Beloved, if you're here this morning, I want you to know that God has gone through the most extravagant cause to redeem you from your sin and to save you from his wrath, that you might forever live in his grace and his love. That's what Jesus is about. He's accomplishing our salvation, our rescue. He's snatching us away from the acts of God's wrath that is falling upon sinful humanity. And he does it because of love. And he does it not because of anything in us, but purely because of his grace. So that now he calls you to turn from your sin to see yourself as we all are, sinners before a holy God. To in humility acknowledge that rather than in pride deny it. To acknowledge your sin, to confess it, to agree with God that, that yes, your sin is ugly and your sin deserves his judgment. And he calls you to turn away from sin for it is no friend of yours. To forsake it and to trust in Jesus alone to supply the righteousness you need to satisfy God and to make atonement for your sins, to pay the penalty for your sins. The trust in Christ alone as he offers himself to you in the gospel, the sinless son of God, crucified, buried, and resurrected, the Lord of all creation, who shall be your God and your master, under whose yoke you shall live, but it is a loving yoke to come to Christ and to follow him in the obedience of faith. And God promises that all who do that shall be saved, shall be rescued, shall be saved from his judgment and saved for his love. My friend, if you've come this morning and you're hearing that message perhaps for the first time or, or perhaps with new ears, let me encourage you to trust it, to depend upon Jesus to call out to him even now. Call out to him while you can, while you may be saved, and to trust him to keep his promise of rescuing you from God's judgment and making you God's child, to cleanse you of all unrighteousness and to supply to you his own perfect righteousness. Turn to Christ, trust him, and be saved. Today is a day of providence, in your life, the day that God has appointed for you to hear this message, do not harden your heart. Run to Christ while it's still day. Run to him that you might be saved. He will save you. He will save you. All you need to have is a sense of your need for him. Flee to Christ and be saved. And Christian, by this same gospel, 
this gospel that you have believed, this Christ whom you have trusted, this life of faith that you have entered. In this same gospel and in this same Christ are all the resources of God, are all the graces of God to forgive and to live a life of forgiveness even in the most difficult of situations. May the Lord grant us yet more of his grace and grant us to live in a manner fitting our calling. Let's pray together. Father, we, we're speechless in the face of your sacrifice, the sacrifice of your son. We're humbled that our sins should require so much. And we're stunned that the Savior should lower himself so far as to take upon himself our likeness and to die in our place to redeem us, O Lord, from your judgment. And we marvel at the reality, O Lord, that in Christ we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And in Christ we have been given, O Lord, everything that pertains to life and godliness. We marvel, O Lord, with the, with the inspired apostle who, who realizes that having been given Christ, Lord, how shall you withhold from us any good thing? So teach us, O Lord, to live in the good of your gospel, to live in the awareness of your grace, to live in the, the riches of the treasures of Christ, to love him and to delight in him and to so walk with him as to become like him, forgiving as he forgave, loving as he loved, sacrificing as he sacrificed. And Lord, I pray this morning, even now, you would grant repentance and faith unto eternal life to those who have come this morning and are hearing now the words of life. Save them, O Lord. Change them. Make them new, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.